This episode is brought to you by Tillit, the style leader in hospitality workwear and hotel and restaurant uniforms. Learn more at tillitnyc.com. So Katie, you ride the subway to work every day. Do you ever see people eating on the subway? I eat on the subway and I feel guilty about it 70% of the time. Do you think it should be against the rules to eat on the subway? I'm guessing not since you (laughs) do eat on the subway sometimes. Uh, No, I don't think it should be against the rules because the reality of commuting in New York City is that sometimes it's the only chance I have to eat. So did you know that um, it's not against the rules in New York, but in D.C. it is against the rules? Really? I think I've eaten on the subway in D.C. too. Um, So uh, this past weekend, this author named Natasha Tynes wrote on Twitter, she posted a picture of this woman who's actually a transit worker eating and wrote a tweet, when you're on your morning commute and see at WMATA employee in uniform eating on the train, I thought we were not allowed to eat on the train. This is unacceptable. So it became this whole debate of like, was she in the right for upholding the rules, quote unquote rules, or um, was she just being a total snitch? I vote snitch. I've seen so many worse violations of the social code on the subway than eating. That was my co-host Kat Johnson telling me a story that got us thinking this week. There are a lot of things that are against our food rules. What makes us celebrate some foods and forbid others? Sometimes it's because they seem strange or unappetizing. Sometimes we've been told they're unhealthy. And usually there are complicated cultural and socioeconomic forces at work. Today, we've got four stories about forbidden foods. My name is Katie Mosman-Wadler. This is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. First, we'll hear from Kat Johnson with the story of a food made popular because it's forbidden. Let's talk rice. I've always got at least three kinds in my pantry. Arborio for risotto, sushi rice as a side dish for practically any stew or braise, and then my favorite, forbidden rice. In ancient days in China, this rice was offered to Chinese emperors as a tribute to their longevity because in Chinese herbal medicine, uh, the black rice and a whole classification of black foods was uh, considered a blood tonifier. This is Ken Lee. I am a co-founder, co-CEO of Lotus Foods here in Richmond, California. Ken and his now wife, Carol Levine, started the Lotus Foods journey on a market research trip to China. They were exploring several entrepreneurial opportunities and had no idea they'd end up building a business around food. When we got to Beijing, we, uh, of course, are tourists as well as looking for a business idea. So you have to go to the Forbidden City and the Summer Palace and the Great Wall and all these places. And while we were walking in the Forbidden City, having visited with all these uh, farm stands and heard about the black rice, uh, it dawned on me, it was uh, kind of like my light bulb moment where I turned to Carol and I said, that black rice that we saw, let's call it Forbidden Rice, the exclusive grain of the emperors uh, because of the it was offered to them because of, uh, you know, as a tribute to their longevity because of the nutritional qualities. So Forbidden Rice was not the original name. 
They called it tribute rice or longevity rice. And if you do a, like a LexisNexis search on the internet for the term forbidden rice, you won't see it until we started uttering the words. I think it was right around 1994. I asked Ken if by naming the rice forbidden, they intended to market it as an ingredient with mysterious origins. It's kind of a provocative name. It's kind of like the story of Adam and Eve. Don't eat this apple. What? <laughs> So something forbidden is kind of like, I think people want to engage in something like that. Uh, You won't get arrested for buying forbidden rice. (laughs) And so it seemed to be an ingenious name to me. It had had standing because the the emperors who the rice was exclusive for uh, lived in a forbidden city. So uh, I didn't think it was a big stretch and I thought it was a, a nice name to gain attention for the product. And To this day, it's been our best-selling rice uh, year in and year out. While Lotus Foods may be most known for their forbidden rice, they're also doing great work as a B Corp. A B Corp certification is a third-party standard given to for-profit companies who meet social sustainability and environmental performance standards. Lotus Foods fulfills these standards in part through their efforts to promote SRI, or the System of Rice Intensification. We call it more crop per drop. And so more crop per drop is a way of growing rice that doesn't flood the fields, uses much less water, less seeds, and using less seeds meaning there's more to eat. You can learn much more at lotusfoods.com. You can even order forbidden rice directly from their website so you can feel like an emperor in the comfort of your own kitchen. The mystery of being forbidden made this rice more marketable, but for other foods, it's the opposite. Aaliyah Papes has a story about foods that are forbidden because they seem mysterious or even dangerous to people in power. There's two kinds of forbidden foods, right? There's the one culturally and morally, what, should, what can we eat and what is acceptable? And then there's like the laws and policies. This is Mark Padungpat, an associate professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I research and write about uh, Asian American and Pacific Islander uh, history. Mark got really interested in restaurant health inspections when he came across a debate over a food practice that was forbidden in California in the 1980s. Health policies at the time made it illegal to prepare duck using traditional Chinese methods. You hang it at room temperature, and this was part of the cooking process, so that the skin gets really crispy, and but the meat stays really juicy. Uh, and so that violated the U.S. and California state health policies, which required food to be refrigerated or kept above a certain temperature. The policies were ostensibly designed to keep consumers safe, but Chinese restaurant owners saw it differently. They banded together with a state assemblyman to introduce the Chinese roast duck bill to the California state legislature. Uh, When the bill gets introduced, it led to this huge debate where the Chinese restaurant owners were arguing that, hey, Chinese people have been doing this for thousands of years. This is a cultural practice that... Um, It's completely safe. The policy was also costing Chinese restaurant owners a lot of money and labor. Because the health inspectors would come in, you know, see the ducks hanging and say, hey, go throw that out in the dumpster. And Chinese restaurant owners are like, this is thousands of dollars worth of really delicious duck that we, we are throwing away. The only recourse they had was to change the law. Thankfully, the California state legislature was persuaded, and they passed the bill in 1982. It seems like a happy ending. Chinese roast duck went from forbidden to celebrated. The duck problem was solved, but the deeper problems were not. 
Even after the pushback from the Chinese community, government agencies continued to treat immigrant food cultures as suspect. I was hoping that this bill would have opened up that conversation, but it didn't. It didn't really force health departments to be reflective. It just made the Chinese roast duck exempt from the existing policy. Mark found the same issue in U.S. import laws for foods like lemongrass and kefir limes, both staple ingredients in Thai food. They were illegal to import to the U.S. for much of the 20th century. Government agencies like the FDA, the USDA, and others made pamphlets outlining the dangers of bringing in forbidden foreign foods. All this menacing language made Mark wonder. Like, to what extent does that language then get inscribed onto human bodies? So often, food brings together people of different backgrounds and experiences. But food can also be used to draw borderlines and divide our culture. I think the the, the broader implication is how race gets made. Like, how does this idea of race continue to get perpetuated and it gets reinforced in ways that, that are often hidden and, are, and that we don't uh, often see, in addition to, like, the really obvious ways. Food and food practices and food ways are a really, really important site to investigate if we want to understand how ideas about race get made and remade in the United States, I think, and especially when we think about uh, public health, disease, immigrantness, and how all of those things have been wrapped together to define who is other in this country. I first heard Mark speak on HRN's podcast, Meant to be Eaten, where he talked with host Coral Lee about his research. Check out episode 51, Stuck in the Asian Suburbs, to learn more about Mark's work and to hear his excellent conversation with Coral. Our forbidden episode will continue right after a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Tillit, the style leader in hotel and restaurant uniforms. Tillit is redefining workwear for the hospitality industry, ensuring that you and your team feel great from stove to street. Tillit is a full line of workwear clothing from pants to work shirts, chef aprons, jackets, dresses, chef coats, and more, with over 95% of their garments produced in the USA. Each hotel and chefwear collection is timed with the seasons, comprised of exceptional functional fabrics and built to last. Custom uniforms can be tailored for your restaurant, hotel, or store. Learn more at tillitnyc.com. That's T-I-L-I-T-N-Y-C.com. Welcome back to Meet in 3. This week is all about forbidden foods. Pauline Munch has a story about foods that are forbidden by self-imposed rules. Whether you're reading magazines, listening to radio, or watching TV, it feels like the mainstream food coverage is always focused on the latest fad diet. Usually, these diets focus on forbidding certain types of foods. Hi, I'm Hope Addy, owner of Keto Eats and Treats. If you're not familiar with the term keto, it's short for ketogenic diet. The idea behind the diet is to get your body into a state of ketosis. This is a natural process where the body uses fat as its main source of energy instead of carbohydrates. This metabolic process is a sort of backup system that has only evolved to protect us in situations of famine or reduced food supply. 
But one of the other ways for this to happen is for us to stop eating virtually all carbs. At first glance, the keto diet seems to deprive people of their guilty pleasure foods. My whole business is really around making your ketogenic lifestyle easier. So the things that you really, really miss, I want to have that available. Thanks to Hope Adi, you can now find a selection of sweets and baked goods in a small strip mall in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. So we have our crackers, which are a staple item, and then our bread as well. Uh, our pizza crusts are very popular. Today in store we have available the vanilla pound cake with a chocolate ganache. And then we have several different flavors of cookies, chocolate chip, maple pecan, mint chocolate chip. These items are usually made with almond flour and sweetened with sugar alternatives. So no carbs and really high fat. We stepped outside the shop and Hope told me how she came to keto. After having three children back to back, Hope found herself 120 pounds overweight. So my whole life I had dieted and I did the things that most people do, and that's cutting calories, um, eating salads all the time, just, just miserable. So I started doing my research and I realized you were allowed to have things like high-fat mayo and cream and cheeses, and I was like, I am in heaven. Hope restricted all carbs and got her body into a state of ketosis. As fat became her main energy source, Hope went online to learn more about what was happening. So that's when I hopped onto good old Facebook um, and I looked for support groups. I didn't know that there was something called a keto flu where your body kind of detoxes from the sugar and you kind of feel yucky for a couple weeks if you're very carb heavy before keto. So I learned quite a bit um, and then I decided I'm just going to create my own group and help as many people as I can. After launching her own Facebook group, Hope started baking for her mother-in-law. And that's when everything just came together. She tasted it and she didn't realize that it was sugar-free, so I felt, you know, as her daughter-in-law, like I did something really great. And then one of my members who also has a diabetic husband said, he loves pound cake, could I bring you some ingredients and you can make him one? So I did that, and um, she said he loved it so much he cried. So I thought, hey, maybe I might have a talent here. The group encouraged Hope to keep baking and gave her the push to open shop. But the impact of Hope and her group has spread way beyond this Canadian bakery. Um, I would say that we're the fastest growing ketogenic community um, and probably the most welcoming. So I'm really proud of that. And the community is now 19,000 people strong. Still though, the science behind the actual efficacy of keto is murky. A 2018 study found that over time, there was virtually no difference for weight loss between a low carb and a low fat diet. Similar results have been found specifically for keto diets. There definitely are those studies that will tell you that long-term ketosis is not the greatest thing. And I'm one of those believers that there is no reason for you to be in ketosis for the rest of your life. What I tell people is use, you know, the ketogenic diet, get into ketosis and become a fat-burning machine, lose the excess fat, and then start to increase your good carbs. Navigating fat diets, it's hard to know what really works. Making certain foods taboo can be problematic. But chatting with Hope, I began to get a new perspective on the ketogenic diet. A strong community has formed, connecting people who really care about what they're eating. Our last story from Aaliyah Papes is about a food that isn't technically forbidden. By the way, would you like a glass of human milk? <laughs> would I? Yes. Yeah. Dedicated listeners of Meat and 3 may recognize this voice. My name is Mathilde Cohen, and I'm a professor of law at the University of Connecticut. Mathilde and I last spoke about milk a few weeks ago, on our episode about names. 
That conversation mostly focused on cow versus plant milks. But when Mathilde mentioned some of her research on human milk, I knew we'd have to invite her back on the show. When my daughter was born in 2013, I lived in Brooklyn, and I signed up on a parent's listserv when I was pregnant. And I realized that people in the neighborhood were looking for donor human milk, and there were parents offering human milk as a donation or for a fee. Mathilde was fascinated. As a law professor, my first question was, is this legal? How is this regulated? And is this regulated differently than other types of milk we're more familiar with, such as animal milk or plant milk? To find out whether human milk was forbidden, she started interviewing people and digging into research by sociologists, anthropologists, legal scholars, and others. And, and I must say, I myself donated milk via that listserv as a way of learning more about the market. And I thought that it would, would be a great way to learn about this market because by definition, it's not really public. And there's starting to be a lot of scholarship about it. But in 2013, it was still uh, a pretty hidden under the radar practice. What Mathilde found was that there's actually very little regulation of human milk in the United States, which isn't necessarily a problem. It's allowed people to get milk more easily from informal networks like the parents listserv. The problem, says Mathilde, is that our government and culture don't do enough to support human milk production. What is in urgent need of being regulated is the fact that it is extremely difficult for most American women to actually breastfeed exclusively for six months as recommended. The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics says that exclusive breastfeeding provides optimal nutrition and health protection for the first six months of life. They say it would ideally continue up to 12 months. The American Academy of Pediatrics says breastfeeding isn't just an individual choice. It's a public health issue. And the World Health Organization calls breastfeeding the normal way of providing young infants with the nutrients they need for healthy growth and development. The WHO also says that virtually all mothers can breastfeed, provided they have accurate information and the support of their family, the healthcare system, and society at large. Mathilde says that support is what the United States is largely missing. We tell parents to breastfeed, and they feel terrible because many of them can't do it. But they don't have the material conditions allowing them to breastfeed. There's an underlying assumption that because lactation and breastfeeding are natural, they're easy and free. But not every parent is physically able to lactate. And even if they are, it's a skill that people often have to learn. It's also labor that takes parents' time and attention away from other things. We should have things like paid parental leaves for at least six months. If you want people to breastfeed exclusively for six months, they have to have at least the option. We also don't have many options for people who can't produce milk to get it. In Brazil, there's a network of over 200 publicly subsidized milk banks. In the United States, there are 23 nonprofit milk banks, and they're not subsidized by the government. Uh, we also need a much better medical system, especially across uh, the demographics. So we know that white women uh, and affluent women get way better prenatal, postnatal care, well, way better lactation counseling. So this is something that needs to change. And finally, we also need insurance companies to cover the cost of human milk because human milk is extremely pricey. There are lots of reasons these policies don't exist. 
For one thing, many parents in the U.S. don't want the government to get involved in what they can and can't feed their children. Breastfeeding is also something we think of as domestic work, which tends to be undervalued. Though, again, women are not the only people who breastfeed, women historically have been construed as people who should be working for free. Uh, they should be doing most of the housework and childcare and emotional labor and milk labor for free. And it, that's what our culture is built upon. This work is invisible, uncompensated, unrewarded. Um, and so I think we continue to live based on that assumption that milk will be provided for free. There's also an issue of naming. You might notice Mathilde never calls it breast milk, which honestly does sound to me like a liquid that should be forbidden. Instead, Mathilde always calls it human milk, or just milk. After all, when we drink milk from a cow, we don't call it udder milk. Talking with people about this story, a lot of them were uncomfortable with the word or even the idea of breast milk. We see it as a bodily fluid and not a food. That's part of why a lot of people are uncomfortable when they see someone nursing or pumping milk in public. So I do a lot of public pumping as a form of political act. And because I'm a traveling worker, I live in New York and I work in Connecticut. I have a four-hour commute. So if you've seen someone pumping on Amtrak recently, it could have been me. Um, and I feel very strongly about the fact that it should be seen as normal. It was around this moment in our interview that Mathilde offered me a glass of human milk. I like to think of myself as a pretty open-minded person, but you can hear that even I had a pretty nervous reaction to the offer. By the way, would you like a glass of human milk? <laughs> would I? Yes. Yeah. I have a, a lot in my fridge. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> the idea that human milk is a bodily fluid and not a food, and that it's free, is deeply ingrained. It prevents us from instituting policies that would make breastfeeding easier. That means parents, especially parents who don't have lots of material resources, often can't feed their babies milk. Babies miss out on nutrition, and we also miss out on medicinal possibilities for human milk. We're comfortable with milk from cows, goats, sheep, and soybeans. Why not from humans? Plus, as I can now say from experience, it actually tastes pretty good. That's our show. We'll be back next week with stories from our Hall of Fame. In the meantime, let us know if you try any forbidden foods. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at heritage underscore radio or join the Meet and 3 group on Facebook. Special thanks this week to Kat Johnson, Pauline Munch, and Aaliyah Papes for their reporting. Meet and 3 is produced by Liza Hamm, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with lead production for this episode by Aaliyah Papes. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. 